So I've been waiting to preach this sermon for the last three months. And if you've been following our Revelation series, my guess is somewhere inside you, you've been waiting for this week as well. Why? Because we're finally talking about heaven. See, deep down, we all want heaven. We all long for something better and more beautiful than the world we're living in. And this is wonderfully captured by uh, author Randy Alcorn uh, in his book simply titled Heaven. In it he writes, Nothing is more misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think that what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen TV, a new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii. What we really want is the person we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. Nothing less can satisfy us. We may imagine we want a thousand different things, but God is the one we really long for. His presence brings us satisfaction. His absence brings thirst and longing. Our longing for heaven is our longing for God. So today, lean into that longing with me. So when you think about heaven, what do you think about? What do you picture? Clouds, angel wings and harps, streets of gold, pearly gates, maybe seeing loved ones who have gone before you, or maybe asking Jesus all the questions you've ever wanted to ask him. Now, many of these are mentioned, many of these are mentioned directly in the Bible, so I'm not going to discount any of them. But that's not really how the Bible describes heaven. So how does the Bible actually describe heaven? What will it be like? What will we do? What does God really want you to understand about heaven today? Well, so today we're going to look at the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. Chapters 21 and 22. Now, see, these two chapters, they represent the climax of the book of Revelation, the New Testament, the entire Bible, the story of humanity, and the entire story of God. These two chapters are the climax. It is the culmination of everything. So how does the Bible talk about eternity? Well, in in these chapters, there are three primary metaphors that I want to talk about today. There are three primary metaphors that these chapters talk about. It's heaven as a new heaven and earth, a new city of Jerusalem, and a new Garden of Eden. Now, I recognize that these metaphors might not mean much to you, 
but they are arguably three of the most important word pictures to first century Christians, Israelites or Gentiles. They are hugely important. And now before we dive in, there are a couple important things that I, that I want to remind you of about these three metaphors. So first, like the rest of Revelation, nearly all of the imagery in these two chapters come from the Old Testament. It is not original to the book of Revelation. It's coming directly out of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And then the second one. As a result, because of that, each, each of these images would be familiar to most of the first century listeners. They would be very familiar. But all throughout, there would be things that would be different. So as we read sections today, I want you to pay attention to what would be familiar and what's totally different. So let's look at them. First, a new heaven and a new earth. So the idea of a new heaven and new earth isn't new. It actually comes right out of Isaiah. And it starts off in the very first verse. Here it is. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So we often think of going up to heaven, but the truth is heaven actually came down. See, God's space came down to human space and became one. See, this boundary between heaven and earth, God's reality and our reality, is permanently removed. This is the ultimate answer to the prayer that we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here we see that happen. See, this, and this, new vi this vision of a new earth, it does not mean that our current earth just gets destroyed or replaced. No. This current earth gets restored. It gets redeemed to be what God created it to be in the beginning. So we're also introduced to some things that won't be in heaven. And th this new heaven earth that exists, it won't have some things. See, this is a place, this heaven earth, this is a place where God's will always happens. Everything will align with God's perfect will 
plan, and desire. So anything that is against God's will, anything that is against human flourishing, anything that is against true life and healing is gone. There's no place for it. There will be nothing and no one that is anti-God. There will be no death. There will be no pain, no mourning, no crying. There's also an unexpected one on the list. There will be no sea. Did you catch that? Now, as a kid who grew up in Southern California, basically on the beach, now that makes me very sad because I love ocean sunsets and waves crashing. And what do you mean there'll be no sea? See that, but then I have to remind myself that the first century listeners to this, they don't look at the sea like I do. See, to them, the sea was a place of chaos and death. So it has no place in heaven. But don't worry for all you fishermen, there will be rivers. So you're in luck. So eternity for God's followers will be both heaven and earth come together as one. It'll be familiar like earth, but it will be completely different like heaven. What will that be like? We don't know, other than it will be familiar, but it will be completely different. Let's look at the second one. The new city of Jerusalem. See, now, in this city, or in this passage, we're introduced to the holy city called New Jerusalem. See, this is the second metaphor that this passage uses for heaven. So start in verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. See, so the first thing we see here, Jerusalem is described as the bride of the Lamb. Now, some of you might be thinking, but wait, I thought the church was the bride. Didn't we just look at that a couple chapters ago? Yeah, you're right. See, but just like the new creation is both heaven and earth together, the, the bride of the Lamb, the bride of Jesus is both a people and a place that have come together. So the bride is both the church and this new city, this new Jerusalem. So we also see attempts to describe heaven's indescribable beauty and its, its size and its completeness, all of which are indescribable, but God gives us through John some attempts to capture it. And so like most of Revelation, like you've heard me say over and over again, 
These are not to be taken literally. These are not literal blueprints for a city. But they are meant to stir up in us an appreciation for God's grandeur and His greatness. So here are some of the things we see. The city shines with brilliance of precious stones and jewels all over the place. The streets are made of gold. Now, in part, to help describe and symbolize the beauty of God. But also, if you think about it, in God's kingdom, wealth is so useless, they pave the roads with it. Also, we see that this city has 12 gates for the 12 tribes of Israel. And these gates are each made, each gate is made of a single pearl. Wrap your head around that for a second. The entire gate is made of a single pearl. So, they, so if you like clams, they must got some big ones in heaven. Which also, if you ever wondered, this is where we get the phrase pearly gates. Because the gates are described as made of pearl. Also, there are 12 foundations around these 12 gates. And these 12 foundations have the names of the 12 apostles. Just like we've seen 12 and 12, 144, 144,000, it's to represent the Old Testament and the New Testament and the followers of God. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. All of this symbolism is meant to elicit awe and wonder. Will the streets be literally paved with gold? Maybe, maybe not. But it sure is an amazing thing to picture. So this passage also describes the symbolic dimensions of the city. This passage describes it that the city of Jerusalem isn't just a perfect square, because that was seen as the most perfect shape. It's actually a cube. It's a cube of 12,000 stadia, or about 1,400 miles. So about 1,400 miles length, width, and height. And this, the heaven is a literal cube, figuratively. Why a cube? Well, because as we saw in the video, in the temple, the most holy place in the temple, the holy of holies, was a cube. And that's where God resided. So will heaven be an actual cube no, because I'm not sure what they would do with the 1,400 miles high. But it is a new, magnificent, most holy place, holy of holies, where God resides fully. That's what those measurements are all about. And then this leads to probably the most shocking statement in all of these two chapters. That's verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, I cannot overstate how shocking this would be to every single first century listener to this book, especially the Jews. 
Because Jerusalem was the temple. The temple was Jerusalem. There is no Jerusalem without temple. It is a ridiculous notion. But here, they don't need the temple. Because God and Jesus are the temple. That is an amazing thought to behold. So let's continue. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written. In the Lamb's book of life. See, in heaven, God will no longer live out there. Not even in here. But His glorious presence will fill the new creation. (laughs) It will fill the new creation. Every space, every moment. This is the ultimate and permanent incarnation. Jesus came. God came as human in Jesus for 30, 33 years. It was a temporary incarnation. But this, this will be God's permanent incarnation. God's presence and His glory will be so universal We won't even need the Son. Because He, God the Father, and the Lamb will shine so brightly. Now there's one more, one more metaphor. And that is the new Garden of Eden. See, this is heaven as a new, restored Garden of Eden. See, this Garden of Eden was God's original creation unmarred by human sin. And in it, God walked among his people. And he gave his people tasks and a mission and people to love. And and this is described in what might very well be my favorite passage, my favorite paragraph in the book of Revelation. Because in it we see the life-giving river of God which is an echo out of Ezekiel 47, which is where we get our name, River Life. Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. 
The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, in this redeemed paradise of the the new Jerusalem, this new garden temple city, God's people will experience his perfect presence, will worship him, will reign with him in this garden like it was at the beginning. There will be no death, there will be no disease, only life flourishing human life. See, heaven will not be clouds and harps and angels. It will be a majestic, eternal, perfect garden temple city where God's complete personal presence is everywhere, all at once, all the time. Don't you want to spend your eternity there? So toward the end of the chapter, at the end of the book, at the end of the Bible, God offers this invitation to everyone who hears, to every one of you, to every one of you. It says this, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. God is inviting you to come to Jesus. If you are thirsty, come to Jesus. He has a free gift of the water of life. All you have to do is take it. Allow him to write his name on your forehead. Say that you belong to him. Ask him to write your name in the Lamb's book of life. Come to Jesus. I want to give you some time, a few minutes here, to sit with that, to engage, to respond to that, that, that call. Come to Jesus. And I'm, I'm going to play, we've got a music video here from one of my favorite artists, Chris Rice. And it simply says, Come to Jesus.